listening to Full Service Radio. Full Service Radio. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service Radio. Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit simplecast.com. everybody this is nikki nellis and you're listening to industry night with foodie and the beast there's no beast today it's just me the foodie uh lucky me i'm taking over the show uh for those of you who don't know foodie and the beast is a radio show that is on another station we've been on for the last nine years and we've been covering uh the dc food and wine scene uh talking about everything that's going on, not just here locally, but also things going on nationally. And we're so lucky to be here today at the Line Hotel, where we now do our show, Industry Night. And we bring in people from the industry to really talk about the who, what, where, when, and why of what's happening, not just in D.C., but also what's happening nationally in the food scene. And today, we are going to be talking to some really interesting people, and I'm so excited to bring them in. But first... Before I introduce our guests, we have Todd Thrasher in with us. Yay, Todd. Wow. Yes, so Todd is the spirit... Spirited The spirited advisor at Brothers and Sisters here at the Line Hotel. Now, you know Todd from a lot of other things. If you're from the D.C. area, he's been with Cahal Armstrong and Michelle Armstrong at Restaurant Eve and their other properties uh, for quite a long time. Uh, He'll be involved with um, their new project, and also he's opening up a a distillery. Potomac Distilling Company, Tiki T&T, and Thrasher's Rum at the Southwest Waterfront starting July 1st. Yay, we cannot wait. Uh, But today he is joining us because he is going to start joining us almost on every show to uh, entertain us with some cocktails. So what have we got here today, Todd? So it's a little early in the morning, so I figured um, I'd start out with a breakfast cocktail. This is called It's Not an Espresso Martini. And I did this. No, co- it's not. It's not. <laughs> so I did this cocktail because everyone comes into a bar, especially we're in an international hotel where people come in from all over and people say, I would like an espresso martini. Me as a bartender, I don't know what that is mm-hmm. because everyone's idea is different. So I decided to make something that I would call an espresso martini, but it's not. So it's um, a Hitachino Nest Espresso Stout from Japan. Mm-hmm. It is a um, Niki Coffee Grainy Whiskey. Japanese whiskey from Japan. And then. Oh, wait, it's not named after me? It's not. Sorry. Okay, all right. It's spelled the same. Oh. And then <laughs> the base of the cocktail is um, cold brew coffee that I made with orange peels and a little bit of sugar. And it's it's kind of an ode to what my grandmother used to drink. She used to have this, uh, this square instant coffee container when mm-hmm. I was a kid. And it was coffee and orange flavored. So that's what how this cocktail came about. Well, it's really delicious. So it has coffee yeah. to get you going. Right. And it has whiskey to keep you going. But I do think if you start drinking this in the morning, it's going to be a really long day. This is how we do it, <laughs> brothers and sisters, on the weekend. Everyone starts at 10 o'clock here okay. and goes all day. Well, we really appreciate you mixing it up for us. And thank you for joining us. Thank I'm you gonna, very much. Uh, and we'll see you in a little bit. Yeah, I'm going to go and make a punch. We have a punch card here at Brothers and Sisters, too. Oh, cool. So I'm going to make We're going to get punchy. Yes. Excellent. Love it. All right, All right. Todd. We'll see have you in a Have fun, y'all. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. So joining us in studio, we have... Um, Joe Henderson and his daughter Lulu Henderson. They are with Chapel Hill Farm, no S, and there's a reason for that, and we're going to get to that. And they raise Randall Lineback cows. And we, I had them on Foodie and the Beast a couple of weeks ago, and as we were talking on air, I was like, oh my God, there is so much 
to learn here. And it's not just the big ag versus the small farm. It's about how we eat, how we include meat in our diets, and how we eat right. And uh, both Joe and uh, Lulu just are, are total fountains of information. So I don't want to waste any more time. Joe, I want to start with you. Um, you got into farming. How did that happen? I grew up in Northern Virginia um, and Washington. So I'd spend weekends and summers with grown-ups, meaning grandparents and aunts and uncles, out around Leesburg, when Leesburg was Leesburg, mm-hmm. um, before it became a suburb. Okay. So uh, that was, those are the days when you had a farm, maybe been 500 acres, but you had sheep, you had goats, you had uh, horses, you had cows, possibly dairy cows, you had chickens. It was a multi-purpose farm, and you could do different grains. You had some corn, you had some barley, you had some wheat, and you had some grazing land. And that was my, my aesthetic of beauty and what was the most wonderful thing in the world was a real life farm. Mm-hmm. Um, fast so, forward to today. So fast forward to or today. Or to 20 years ago. I did, <laughs> I, so I, I did various, various business things mm-hmm. um, and then ended up saying, you know, it's either you do a farm now or not going to ever do it. And it turned out that I'd grown up in the most beautiful place in the world, which is the Blue Ridge. Um, so we were looking for a very specific house, an old stone house, water on the land, control your view, one room deep, face southeast. Mm-hmm. That was what we were looking for. We were never so you're not find particular at all. No. And so we were going to stay in DC and never do the Forever. farming thing. Uh-huh. And, then the, and then it happened. You know, it's only supposed to be 100 acres. It ended up being more like 500 acres. Um, and we had a farm. Okay. And that the was in land, 1999. Yeah, America's land... Can, you can classify Americans' land um, as whether it has good tilth and very, very thick, rich soil, mm-hmm. or whether it tends to be grazing land. Whether it's the, the soil is there, it's good. It's not totally marginal. You can grow things on it. So the Shenandoah Valley is what they call limestone karst. It's fairly thin soil. Today, it's good for grazing. Okay. Back in the Civil War days, that was the breadbasket of the South. But now, it's grazing land. Mm-hmm. So we ended up with a farm. We ended up with a lot of grazing land. So what do you do? Something has to graze it. The, the main grazing um, creature you've got are cattle. Okay. So then the question is, what kind of cattle? Every, every the, oh, the commercial herds, um, the conventional herds, are all what they call cross angus. So they're black. Mm-hmm. They're not necessarily angus, they're certified angus, but they're all black. Um, and by and large, they're very blocky, they're very chunky, they they get very fat relatively qu- quickly. They grow fast. They have a very high fertility rate. <clears throat> That's conventional. Okay. And you can give those animals lots and lots and lots of corn. Because um, that's what they've been bred to eat? What's happened is we've created industrial animals. Okay. So we've modified the genetic codes that, that we're using in our meat industry have been, have been altered. They've been altered to produce fast-growing, fat animals, tolerant of standing around on concrete a lot, um, and producing a lot of intermuscular fat. If I squeezed your bicep and I said to you, Nikki, that's, that's the fattest muscle I've seen in ages. You'd say, Joe. I know, because I work out really, really nuts, hard, right? Joe. What are you talking I, about? I work out five days a week, Joe. <laughs> so There's now, a reason right. for that. So think about it. When you go into a restaurant, and they're essentially, we're serving muscles. That's what right. we're doing. And we're asking for muscles that are interlaced with fat. It doesn't make sense. The reason they get interlaced with fat is because we're cramming all this protein in, mainly coming from corn, 
And the way the industry works is the farmer takes the highest risk position, which is having a calf and raising a calf. The calf get ra gets raised to about 500 pounds. I'm not a rental cattle yet. Tell me if no, you're No, 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 no. I know. We're, we've it's moved okay. a little bit, but we'll get there. So let's just finish this okay. thought. So what happens, the way the industry works is cattle grown up to about 500 pounds by the farmer. Those are called five-buck cows. Those generally are collected. There's a collection system all around. They're buyers. The buyers buy these five-buck cows. They then assemble them into uniform lots, and they ship them. They ship them to big collection points, and those big collection points take those animals, and they, that's, that then gives you what's called the CAFO. Mm -hmm. That's where you get the, these animals then go to the feedlots. The feedlots cram them with very, very high, large amounts of protein, corn, mm -hmm. very, very fast. They stand around in these groups of thousands on these, on these asphalt All right, pieces. let's not make me cry yeah. on air just but yet. We are not, not even five system. minutes into the show. Yeah, so that's, that's the way the system does it. Is the, the farmers get to have the high-risk bit. They grow to 500 pounds. Then the industrial system takes over. Mm -hmm. And then the corn system kicks in. Mm -hmm. Then the slaughterhouse system kicks in. Then the big dis distribution system kick kicks in. And you go from one level of bigness to another level of bigness to another level of bigness. Okay, so on that note, with all that happening, mm -hmm. you buy this farm. Buy the farm. You decide you're, you're going to get cows. Yep. How do you decide that you're going to engage in this process on your terms? I'm a conservationist. I believe that, um, that nature has an enormous ability to produce if we'll just let it. But we, we mess it up. We get in and we get involved. It's, it's cold weather resources. It's fish. You see it on land. You see it all around. We tinker around with this stuff too much to, to create these specialized goals. Mm -hmm. So um, when it comes to cattle, you can, I, could, I could go do the conventional get a black but animal. But you didn't. Instead, I looked around and said, who really needs something? Who, who's in the direst shape? And America's had a whole group of animals um, that we call heritage animals. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's chicken, ducks, goats, uh, horses. It's, it's every breed. You have heritage animals. Animals that were around in the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, coming in the 1900s. And they're going out of business. They're getting lost. They're, they're just disappearing. Mm -hmm. um, because they're no they longer don't a priority? Fit the system. They don't fit the system. The okay. system wants productivity. The system wants conversion of corn into, into protein. Mm -hmm. And the system wants it fast. And the system wants it to hold up in packaging. And the system wants all the things. It's like a tomato. Right. Or look at a real farm tomato versus a one that you go on the market and you bounce it off the floor. They're different. Right, just because it looks like a tomato doesn't mean it, it tastes like... That means it's a tomato. Right. So what we see, saw was the rarest of all animals. Mm-hmm. And that turned out to be a, an animal called the Randall lineback. Okay, so give us a little history on the Randall lineback. It's, it's, the, it's the surviving cow. You can call it George Washington's cow. Okay. It's the surviving cow from the 1600s into the 1700s, into the 1800s, and it's an American cow. Um, the America, remember, did not have cows. Right, they weren't just roaming weren't the here. land. Right. So, so, so the Europeans arrived. And the fields were open, and they thought God had provided. And here was all this free land. and Not really free, but that's do. another show. Yeah. That's we can get show. into that later. Okay. That's another show. You want to talk about that later? Okay. <laughs> so, here, so the Europeans arrived. They brought with them their, their cattle and their sheep, some goats, 
chickens. Um, and there are records of the pilgrims bringing what they call the great white back cow, which is a cow with a line down its back. So we know that very early on, there was a, a line back that came, to, that came to this geography. Americans then took cows that the various Europeans had brought, Northern Europeans, cool weather people. So that's like up around Sweden, the Channel Islands, England, northern coast of France, um, Belgium, Denmark, Amsterdam, all that. They bring these animals over. These animals aren't, aren't related. There is no such thing as a breed. So you've got to, you've got to erase from your mind right now the idea of a breed. Sure. It's, it's either of the place it comes from, so it can be Frisian, because it comes from Frisia. It can be who owns it. It can be Lord Delaware's cow. It can be color, it can be yellow, black, white, whatever. And that's how they describe cows. They didn't describe them as what became a standardized purebred. So in comes all these cows. And as Americans became colonists and they began settling, they needed all-round homesteading cows. So they needed cows that could give them meat, could give them dairy, and give them oxen, because the oxen are the, are the tractors. At the same time, but they've got a new environment. They have a new group of pests. They have a new group of fodder that they've got to learn how to adapt to. Some of these, some of these animals did better than others. If you, let's say you were a colonist, I'm a colonist, Lulu's a colonist, each one of us has a couple of cows. I look at Lulu's and I say, dang, they do really well they in the winter really time. They grow well. this thick coat exactly. and right, they, you know, they, they God, I'd like them. to get a little bit of that in my cows. And I look over at yours, I say, good milkers. Mm -hmm. you know, that really braised those young well. So I might go to Lou and say, can I borrow your bull next year? And I'll give you, you know, a calf. Again, or... I'll read it to five mm -hmm. animals and she'll get a choice. I might go to you and say, I love that milk cow of yours. Can I, can I take a get on that one? And I'll begin breeding and creating not a standardized purebred, not something, standardized purebred is an 1850s concept. So we're now in 1600s, 1700s. So we create a, what's called a land race breed. It, it's particular to a geographic area. These are all purpose animals because you've got a little homestead. Mm -hmm. You've got to have your tractor. So, when, so for people, the layperson, when you say all-purpose animals, mm -hmm. the cow does dairy, works in the field, and becomes meat? I mean, and how does... Meat. Because I don't think the layperson, when they think of a cow, and we've talked about this before, you know, I don't think we, we sexualize our animals. We don't think mm -hmm. of the female and the male. I mean, I, we know about the bull, but cows, chickens, pigs, I just think we think of them as a single, like, like unisex. We think of them in a single way. Right. And some of them have no sex, meaning they're castrated. Aww. Or um, business, I mean, if you want to re review some terminology, we yes, have that, I think right? that'd be great. So, I mean, um, so you have the cow, which is sort of common parlance for what we consider cattle, if you're thinking about it. So a cow, theoretically, is a female. Um, but we generally refer to them, um, and we sort of talk about cows and their, their cattle. Cattle are, is the um, gender-neutral or sex-neutral uh, term, so uh, cattle is technically more correct than cow if you're referring to the entire group. Um, heifers are females that have not yet been bred. A steer is a castrated male. 
A bull is a non-castrated male. So you have all of these different So does a steer and become an ox? Yeah, that's yes. a can. An oxen. So ox oxen. are oxen. Yes. So oxen is plural of ox. They are cattle, which is, I think a lot of people think that an you know, ox is a different Like a totally kind different of animal. animal. Yeah. Right. So it is a castrated male. So it's a steer that is paired with another steer of usually just about the same age group so that they have the same gait and they match correctly. Um, to plow the fields. To plow the fields with an even gait. They need to be docile and friendly and, and you know, react to you well. But you would that think was that the they chapter. would be really pissed since they've been castrated, but maybe no, not. Uh, Calms them down. So I don't know. <laughs> they, their memories are short. Their memories are short. <laughs> Well, so it's like, very right. small. They're very small. <laughs> uh, you do it before so they get big. So wait a second. So if you ca- so if you castrate the steer, why are we castrating the steer? The steer is already castrated. Okay. All right. Steers once are castrated. Right, so once they're castrated, okay. then what are we using steer for? You eat steers. We just eat them. So by and large, we're now going to up to day, right? We yes. haven't sort of. We still. We're, Remember, we well, may want to come back yeah, in the do, early do we part. Want, do we want you to want close to go back off to the, the Randall linebacker? I don't think we're going to have time to do it year okay. by year. So uh, <laughs> let's get into the, let's start with like the early 1900s. Okay. By the early 1900s, what's happened is the all-purpose animals of the 1700s and coming into the 1800s um, are all over the United States. And there's, there's the Columbia, there's the, the cream pot, there's a bunch of American breeds, purely American breeds. Not standardized purebreds, but American land race breeds. Europe, who was much richer than we were. Can I interrupt for a yeah. yeah, can you just so, explain so, what land race so, means? Yeah. So land race, if, if we're sort of circling back and summarizing, land race are these. So American land race cattle are the heritage of the heritage. They, they predate conventional standardized breeds such as Angus, Guernsey, Holstein, that kind of stuff okay. in the United States. So these were breeds that were created in the United States, um, in various regionally concentrated areas. So the Randall lineback um, is named both for its coloration, which is the line down its back, as well as the Randall, which was the family that owned it. So the Randalls were the ones who sort of created the farm, so that's the Randall part. The lineback is the coloration. So that was a, a sort of a northeastern coastal breed, sort of in Vermont and Maine, um, and probably down to parts farther south because it reacted well. It was hardy. It was docile. It had delicious meat. It, it was productive as far as milk was concerned um, and, and created really good, strong um, labor as well for these the Randalls, tractors. So it checked every box. It checked all the yeah, boxes. But, the Randalls, but that was one area. So but, then you would have the Piney Woods, which is our southern breed. You have these different breeds. There are only are, two breeds left. There's only two American breeds left. Um, which are the which Piney are the Woods. Ra- Piney Woods and the Randall Lineback. So, uh, and the Randalls... We've eradicated all the rest of them. All the rest have gone. So died. what is Big Ag e- using? Extirpated. They're Angus. They're, and, but that's not a heritage breed. No. No. It's a made-up breed. It's a, it, it began as a standardized purebred. This is, this is getting back to Europe. But Europe had okay. all this money. Right. Europe had built their houses. They'd had their jewels. They had... They'd already done chickens, racehorses, so forth and so on. They'd done sheep. Sheep was really important early on. Finally, they got to cattle. And they decided... In the mid-1800s. Yeah, mid-1800s. So they say, I want a cow that gives a lot of milk, or I give a cow that gives a lot of beef. And what happened was the sprit. They, they created... That's when factory farming began. Okay. 1850s, it was, I'm getting a lot this of milk... This is dairy cows. Or a lot of milk. Or a lot of beef. That's but it. also, I would assume... And that's um, standardized based- purebred. That's, that's Angus. That's Angus. That's Angus. That's Hereford. That's Holstein, that's Guernsey. Mm-hmm. Okay. These are locational places that came to be standardized purebreds. And what, then, what it means is 
they, there's a set of standardized. It says to be a registered Angus Holstein, etc. Here are the standards you must match. Like the designations. You have to be this color. You have to be this height. But what's fascinating about the beef industry is that Angus has taken over it all. And if you actually look at what it takes to be an Angus, it's a big black cow. Right. So there's very little in the way of we, we've created a monoculture, um, pr- a pretty massive monoculture out of cattle, especially in the beef industry. Mm-hmm. I, the, the dairy industry has has kept, I, I think, a little bit more diversity. Somehow well, I mean, there are more okay. breeds associated with I have to be industry. honest. I mean, when we're talking about the dairy industry or the beef industry, I mean, for all intensive purposes, the public really has no idea. They Absolutely. see labeling on packages yep. when they go to the store, when right. they go to into a restaurant, and it right. says this is, I mean, it sounds like it's good, but if you right. don't really know, right. you know, you're just you're just believing the marketing or the hype. Right. So now that you have decided on your farm, I'm, I'm pushing us back here, <laughs> that you have decided that you are going to raise Randall the, Lineback. The animal that's going to die out, the breed that's going to die out. Where did you find it? it? Yeah, where did you find it? There's an outfit down south, and called then it was called the American Livestock Breeds Conservancy. They keep track of all of the heritage animals, the remnants of these different types of animals, um, and who has them and where they are. Mm-hmm. So I got in touch um, and found a person who had part of this. The Randall was the, was, was the family in Vermont that kept a time capsule. So from about 1912... To the 80s, they kept a closed herd. Closed herd means you don't bring any outside blood in. You keep, you get your blood in, and you keep it there. Okay. We're a closed herd. Our family, we only keep our animals. We don't bring in. We're not. We're not, we're not buying. We're but not you, there's buying no incest, them. though, right? Don't you have to be careful. Oh, that's a complicated question. Okay, never mind. So, <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's actually not. It's actually really important. So when you take a breed where you know the main herd itself was down to, we said 15 animals yeah. right. in 1985. Obviously, you have very close genetic lines. Sure. So it's really what one of the things as soon as we acquired um, these animals and was start taking in a very detailed genetic records, who's related to whom, by how many degrees, et cetera, et cetera. Our our breeding program spreads them out so that you you avoid that problem of you know kind of major close incest that said these are closely related lines um every once in a while someone will pop up and say oh my gosh you know my father bought these randalls from the randall family and the whatever and we've closed it off we have real randall linebacks there's you know i just found out about a set that's in canada they have three of them you know isn't that so amazing these tiny little groups but um and we're working right now with a geneticist so there's a uh, very talented geneticist who um, has Virginia worked Tech. um mm-hmm. very closely with uh, phil these Spondenberg. animals phil Spondenberg. Um, and so what we're doing is we're doing a very um, intensive DNA analysis to create what it means to be a Randall lineback from a DNA perspective so that when people come in, the lineback coloration is actually a quite a dominant characteristic. That line will show up really quickly. Mm-hmm. So people will say, oh, look, I have this lineback. It's a Randall lineback, but it's not necessarily the, a Randall lineback. The United lineback. States was self-sufficient in cattle in, by 1640. Okay. okay. We didn't need any more cattle. We had plenty. We could spread them around. We'd sell them. So what happened? Where'd all those, where'd it go? The answer is the English, the French, Germans began creating these standardized purebreds. That's the Angus. I would hear, hey, I could get an Angus bull, bring it over to the States. I'll cross it with my linebacks and I'll get more beef. Mm -hmm. Or I can bring in a Jersey bull and I'll get more milk production in my herd. Okay. And in one generation, boom, you wipe out a breed. Just one generation and suddenly it's gone. 
these are very fragile things. So what happened was European imports from these standardized purebreds wiped out the American breeds. So the American land race breeds that were generally all-purpose became factory breeds. They became dairy, they became beef. And that was so, it. So the, you have these oddball remnants like we're trying to save, which is, this is America's cow. This, these are the cows that dragged the cannon to George, George Washington. I mean, this is historic. These, right. are, these are not just something you're going to trip over on. The okay, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, what I, what I want to really get into is talking about now that you have this farm and mm-hmm. these cows, educating the public of not only why it's so important to save them, but to eat them in order to save them. Because yeah. it doesn't well, always <laughs> make yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah, All right? Sense. Yes, uh, Okay. Do it. This is uh, Nikki Nellis. Uh, my husband is out. David is not here. So there's no beast today, but it is industry night. And we're at the Line Hotel. We'll be back in just a sec. with Industry Night with Foodie and the Beast. The Beast is out today and you've got just me, lucky you. But in studio today, we are talking about Chapel Hill Farm. I'm with Lulu and Joe Henderson. We're learning all about this fascinating cow, um, the Randall Lineback, and how they are bringing it back and serving it up in restaurants and actually in your house all over the country. And also with us is our new resident mixologist or bartender, whichever he prefers to be called. Simple bartender. Okay, so he's a simple, <laughs> simple bartender, Todd Thrasher, who is here at Brothers and Sisters, and he has brought in this gorgeous punch cart. Um, I can't wait. Tell us, what is it? So um, we have a, a... You got to talk into the mic. We have a program here called Punch Love. So we have a punch cart... That we do uh, in in room cocktails with the punch card, and then we go through the lobby. It doesn't uh, involve boxing. It does not involve boxing. Um, so today I'm going to make a cocktail inspired by Charlie Bird. Uh, Charlie Bird, you know, started the Bossa Nova movement here in Adams Morgan, uh, and he lived his life in Annapolis, and he had a boat called I'm Hip. Uh, and legend goes he was a very bitter person. So the name of the cocktail is I'm Hip and Very Bitter. I'm using um, all. I think pro- I, I, I could go with that. I'm yeah. totally cool with that. So I'm using products from uh, Virginia and DC. So I'm using Virginia Fizz sparkling wine from Charlottesville, Virginia, from Claude Thibault. Cool. And then I'm using uh, Don Ciccio Luna Mara. Um, and a local, then, another local. And then one more local, Green Hat Gin. Fabulous. So I'm going to go make it for y'all. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. Um, of course, you can all come see Todd here. Um, he's not circling his. Uh, punch cart just yet around the area but you can see him walking around the line hotel he's always walking around the lobby or he's uh in the bar and uh, he'll certainly make something delicious for you that is the largest piece of ice I, that I is such a large seen. piece of ice i can't 
we'll have to get to that later. Okay, so let's get back. Okay, so Joe and Lulu, we are talking about the Randall Lineback and your farm, uh, Chapel Hill Farm, no S. Um, before we get into why no S is important, I want to, I, I feel like I keep trying to get to this. So you now have this farm and you are now raising these cows. And what, how are you bringing them back? Like, what is the process here? You begin with a few animals. Mm-hmm. You begin with very few animals. Mm-hmm. And the only way with these extremely rare breeds um, is you have to do a transfer. So this is finding this is finding mothers. You get mothers. You put in you put in purebred eggs, and you get purebred animals. So okay. we go from twenty five animals mm-hmm. in two thousand four to six hundred today. Six hundred purebred animals. So we probably have seventy five percent of the world's population of Randall linebacks on a farm. Can I can I flash can I flash back? Yes. Um, so I mean, there, I think there's a, the missing part of this in the beginning is why are you trying to make so many cows? Um, you know, Dad has a, a business background, and the idea was uh, to save a breed. You can't just love on it um, for a generation because once you go, it goes. There's it, it doesn't stick around. Um, well, so. you have to give them a purpose so you have yeah. to give right? them a, a job. job you gotta give them a job you gotta give them. i mean that's so the what idea. these animals are used to right so so what we did when we first acquired these animals is we said to ourselves okay oxen not really right. a possibility well, only we three just, jobs right <laughs> only three jobs <laughs> only three jobs to turn to, to turn to so you know the the oxen are kind of out of favor right now oxen are a slow means of plowing one's fields so um we've really that's not an option um they cannot compete with milk production just based on you're not going to be able to tell the difference between their milk you can't create an artisanal milk, um, and their udders just are not as big as you know in terms of just how much you can produce. So we knew that they couldn't go for dairy. Okay. So we were left with the possibility of can we create a boutique meat? Is there something special about these animals that will save them based on simply the flavor and characteristics of a true American heritage breed? Well, and I want to, but wait, nobody let me, had eaten these. No one had eaten right. like But I also <laughs> want to tap onto that. What I want to tap onto is that. You're sort of starting, you know, this is 2002, right? When you're starting this farm. And so right then, it's sort of like right place, right time. You know, people are starting to talk about big agriculture, how our meat is made. We're seeing these films of what's happening. Right, right, right. Mm -hmm. Um, We're seeing all, uh, Pollen is writing these books. Mm -hmm. We're seeing all this change. Right, we're Mm -hmm. seeing all... This change, farmers markets are, are sprouting up, mm-hmm. um, and it's not just produce. People are coming with eggs and and chickens, and they're raising them, and their pasture raised becomes a term. Right. Right. You know, organic has sort of like been Co-opted. taken over. Been yes, thank you. USDA is depreciated. Right, organic means nothing anymore, um, and so now the term local is becoming really important to people, and now it's more important that you understand local. And, and what it does. And I think what you're doing is so interesting because not only are you super local, but you are really providing a, a service to the cow, obviously, but also to the public. The question is, is how do you educate the public? How do you educate the public like to the taste and the need? How do you, where do you start? Do you start with the chefs and it trickles down? How, does it, how do you educate people on this? Do you want me to try to... I know it's a big question. It's a a big question, and it is really hard. We actually started out thinking, okay, all we have to do is bring one of these animals to a chef, 
and they will taste it and they will taste the difference and whole I mean, animal, everyone will whole say, animal butchery whole animal. no problem they'll uh, they'll be standing on the streets to, but to the problem is yes. is that for especially you know like 10 years ago everybody was talking about whole animal butchery everybody was talking about it and barely was anybody doing was doing it yep. i mean it yeah. was such a scam. Yeah. Big time. <laughs> yeah. No, so the, so the problem is to do it successfully, you need a, you need a large enough restaurant with enough seats. Mm-hmm. You got to have a butcher who knows what he's doing. You have to have a chef who's willing to change the, change the, the and menu. And offer different because pieces. Remember, well, when, offer pieces that people don't in, know about. Yeah, what people have to understand is when they walk into a restaurant and they say, I will have a New York strip, mm-hmm. they're immediately throwing themselves into this factory system. They're immediately throwing... An animal only has so many New York strips. An animal, you know, they only have... Right, so there's many only stuff. so much tenderloin. There's only one so, hanger steak so, per animal. Right. Yeah, that's right. right. So I sell you a... You know, I take an 800-pound animal, and I, and I have it slaughtered. I sell it to you. You've got 400 pounds of stuff, and you got one hanger steak. Okay, so five people walk in your restaurant. They want hanger steaks. Well... That doesn't work. But what's interesting is, is that honestly, 25 years ago, nobody was ordering hanger steak. So the question is, is how do we get, how do we educate people on these other cuts of meat so that the whole cow is used? Except for the tongue. I'm not eating the tongue. I mean, I'm oh, just wait, not going to do hold that. Hold on, though. Really hold good. on, though. Yeah, yeah. It's, so okay, it's okay. Oh, it's okay. You're allowed to have, you're allowed to have any opinions, so, but it okay. is delicious. <laughs> so, so remember, the, the, old, the older system, the European system, and in this country was, you walk in, you say, what does a chef recommend? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That was the way it worked. That's the way the system kind of worked. Today, you don't do that. Mm-hmm. So what's important for the consumer? What's important for the consumer is, first... If you can shake a farmer's hand, if you know that there is a real farmer and you know you can shake his hand and where that person is, mm-hmm. chances are you're going to get much higher quality produce, much higher quality meat and so forth. Well, and that so they're going for, to be caring no. about what they're doing because the scale is going to be small enough that they can care. They can take the time. Well, let's go back just a little bit. So can we talk about the significance of pasture raised? Yes. Because what it gets to is my question kind of earlier, which is... You bring it into the chefs, and there's a, there's a cost added to it. So, oh, can we talk? Right, huge. So, let's talk about what it means to, so that it's not co-opted. What right. it means to pasture raise your animals. Right. So, you, so first of all, you need you need a lot of acreage. Um, our farm is, let's think, 500 acres, 200 of which are in in wildlife management. Um, we need about 20... I'm sorry, I have to interrupt you. This is like the most beautiful little punch glass I've ever oh, seen. Thank yeah, Todd you, Todd. Todd, just up with these amazing cocktails. Little, beautiful, I'm glass obsessed. Mm, so beautiful. Mm, gorgeous. Thank you. Okay, wow. sorry. Joe, um, please continue. That is delicious. So, where was I? Mm. No, no, no. I got hit with a cocktail. I know. I know where we are. So, we were talking about um, mass amounts of land right. to pasture raise. So, 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 the question is, you take, you take a a breed that I think is worth saving. Because when genes disappear from this planet, you got nothing. That right. You have no ability to respond to any emergency. Okay. The most important thing across nature is genetics. We need... Right and I'm going to bring you back, Joe. Pasture That's raised. what we got. Okay. So you take genetics that are extremely rare and mm-hmm. that are used to being outdoors. They optimize grass. That's what cattle... That's what our animals would eat. Okay. You then, guess what? You give them grass. You put them outdoors. You let them be cows. Cows are social animals. Okay? They like low-stress environments. They have a social way of being. They're boss cows. Everybody's got, a, believe it or not, a pecking order in the mm-hmm. cow herd. So you let them be cows. You let these little ones 
nurse on their mothers for five, six, seven months. In many instances, boom, a lot of what you eat is dairy, is retired dairy cows. Those cows have their babies stripped off within 24 hours, okay? So ours have got five months, six months, seven months on their mother. Mm-hmm. They're wandering around the sunny fields. They're so they're well-adjusted cows. Yeah, there is a low stress. So the idea is creating a low stress environment that allows them to live their best lives um, because of the reality of the fact that they need this job. They're the only job that we can give them right now is to be meat. Um, but we can be responsible. We can be kind. We can be humane. And we can make those lives as wonderful as they can be up until that point, right? And through that point, you know, we try to be as responsible right. and careful as possible through the entire stretch of their lives. But so, one of the pieces is you've got to keep them. You want grass creates flavor because that is what an animal was meant to process. So if they are on grass, which takes... It means there's a whole lot more land, which that adds cost. It means that you can't... And much you, more time. Much more time. You because cannot corn fatten them quickly. up. Right. Exactly. Um, but it means that as they walk, as they're, they're free range, as they move around, that's how a muscle develops flavor. So if you think about a fast-moving, fast-growing cow that's fed corn... On a feedlot. On a feedlot. They're not getting exercise, sure. which means the muscles don't de- develop flavor. And they're um, doing it really fast. And so, you know, several you know, months and then you're done. That can't develop the kind of flavor um, that we... Um, so we, we've, we've come to expect these sort of extremely fatty slabs of meat. The USDA prime means how much fat can you fit into a muscle. That's how high it's graded. Wagyu is 90% fat. It's just sort of meat-flavored butter, you know. So we, I we've think grown- butter's cheaper. <laughs> get a stick of butter. Yes, get a stick of butter. It's fine. Um, so I think that we that there's there is something that's really important about when you treat these animals right, when you give them the time that they need. It is also labor wise. Um, it also creates cost for us because they're they're pasture born, they're pasture bred, they're pasture raised. Which means explain we don't, pasture born. Okay, so one of the things that makes things more efficient and more cost effective is if you bring animals indoors. If you create a big barn. You stick them in the barn. It means you don't have to move around. You don't have to move the cows. You don't. Have, they just sit there. Um, it means that you can time. If you do artificial insemination, it means that you can time your birth so that you now don't. You, you, you don't, have to say they. Oh, they. Yes. So if if another group, that's which is not the, what we do, right? That's where the S comes. That's in where the farms, farms come, come from. Okay. Exactly. So you know, one of the, so for us, it's um, to do this right. It is it is more it is more hygienic. It is more sterile. It is more stress free for the animals. It's for them to have a natural breeding process, to have a natural birthing process, and to live their lives outdoors, free range, um, for as you know as long as as long as possible. So you take it. You take a genetic. Mm-hmm which is a lean genetic. It's used to being outdoors, it's used to working. That's, what, that's the nature of these genes. So you have a low fat. Remember when I was talking about your bicep? Mm-hmm. Not your bicep, no. but a one, bicep. A bicep. And, you know, if one wants bicep, a, somebody right. fat, a the fatty bicep versus a muscly bicep. These are muscly biceps. These are biceps that don't have that much fat in them. They're very high in flavor. Flavor really comes from exercise. It comes from the harder muscle works, the higher its flavor So it is. doesn't have to be artificial. I mean, basically exactly. what you're no, saying is that when they all. live a natural, authentic life. And you take the right genes, so you get the right genetic code. Mm-hmm. You team it with the right way of bringing them up. And surprise, surprise, you have a really terrific meat. It's you very different from difference. others. You, you will, will taste, taste the, the difference. difference. Having had it, I mean, yes, you can. I didn't add. ask you, by the way. Oh, it's delicious. Did you cook some of I did. We like cooked you? all of it. I got none of it left. It's delicious. <laughs> I have to order Good. some. Yeah, no, we really, it's so, um, and I had been familiar with the product before. Um, it is really impressive how delicious 
the meat is. Um, and But I think what's interesting about it, and we talked about this off air, is that the American mentality when it comes to eating meat, whether it's chicken or cow or um, you and know, pork. or pork, you know, big it's all bad. about the big, big slab, you know, I want a 32 ounce, you know, steak and I want, yeah. you know, a huge slab of this. And the truth is, is that when you're eating really fantastic quality, you don't need a 32 ounce steak. You can have a six ounce piece of meat. And, you know, I think one of the things that people talk about is, and it and actually, I'm sorry, I'm sort of talking over myself. Right? Well, satisfied. not only are you satisfied, but you know, Years and years and years ago, and you know this better than me, you know, people didn't have a 32-ounce slab on their plate because they couldn't afford it. Mm -hmm. Meat was a luxury. And having a little piece of it, that was a part of a huger meal that involved grains and vegetables and other things that they were growing. So, you know, there's sort of this mentality that when you go out to eat or when you eat at home, you need a big slab of protein. And then the vegetables, they're condiments. They're not really a part of the meal. But I think with what you're doing, you're really bringing back this lifestyle, a healthier lifestyle that says to people, yes, you should still eat meat. But you need a smaller portion of it, and it's and it's a part of the process. It's not the process. But that portion, when it comes down to pure protein, is bigger in some instances than the bigger thing because the bigger thing consists of water and it consists of a lot of fat. Mm-hmm. There are tricks that happen along the system. If I take if I take a piece of meat and I dunk it in a water bath, if I happen to be a, a slaughterhouse, let's say, mm-hmm. and I'm then distributing it. What happens? I'm selling it by the pound. I'm selling something that now has absorbed a lot of ice water. I've artificially increased its weight. Therefore, I am getting more money right. with a cost input of water. Okay. Well, so I want to get to cost because I think the other problem is that uh, people, and we have about three minutes left. The other problem, I know it goes so fast. Uh, the other problem is that uh, you know, people go to a generic grocery store and they see it'll be, you know, five ninety nine a pound right. or whatever, and then they see your meat and it costs a lot more. Now there is obviously a good reason for it, but that goes back to how do you educate them on why it's worth it? That's why we're here. Right. And that's why the chef, the, the when the chefs serve it and people taste it, mm-hmm. they can discover that. We consider but chefs it's hard ambassadors to, for but the it's, But it's hard there's no grocery store for this kind of meat. This is the rarest meat in the world. Right. So um, so we've created an ingredient that the butchers, the best butchers we can find, say is, is unique. Extremely high flavor profile, very low fat profile, fortunately for the Randall linebacks, because if you don't eat them, they die. Mm-hmm. No demand, that breed goes away. So um, for us, it's go on, you have to have an e-commerce site. You have to have a way of getting the product out to the people. And the people have to be knowing knowledgeable enough to say am i dealing with a farm or am i dealing with an industry and and there and the industry is trying to trick you all the time the industry is well you have to be a very smart you have to be smart be smart so that's when it comes if you can if you feel like you you know that it's a farm you can shake a person's hand then you're in business and this type of meat is is I think fantastic okay so let's tell people so you can order your uh, your products offline yeah, so online we have so we have two uh, so we have we have our wholesale to chefs and so hopefully you're going to see Randall back on menus around uh, the DC area. Jeff Black carries Jeff it. Jeff Black, he's one of the only. They're one of the only restaurants that actually do that really do whole animal butchery. I mean that is a really impressive thing. Um, 
And so there's a number of restaurants that, that carry it. Um, and then we have an online retail platform. So you can get online. You can order it online. It will be delivered to your door. Can I and let's it get is, the website? It is, I, I, if you can remember it, it's randalllineback.com. If you can't remember that, lineback.com. That's L-I-N-E-B-A-C-K.com. But you, you can, can also it. Google Chapel Hill Farm, and yep. I'm sure it'll take yeah. you to the right place. Yeah. Joe exactly. and Lulu Henderson, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you this for having was us. such an incredible. A discussion about how we should be eating and be um, a linebacker right everybody should be, be buying linebacker. it <laughs> and Todd Thrasher um, just a quick shout out to you a delicious cocktail when will you be passing this punch cart around hopefully we're going to start the punch cart April 1st here April 1st alright so we get it first you get to hear us drinking from it and then maybe if you're lucky you'll get it too thank you so much for joining us today we want to thank you all for tuning in today this is Nikki Nellis with Industry Night with Foodie and the Beast we'll see you next week Thanks for listening to this program on Full Service Radio, broadcasting and recording from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Full Service Radio programming can be accessed live and archived on fullserviceradio.org. Our talk programming is available on most podcast apps like iTunes and Stitcher, and our DJ sets are available on mixcloud.com slash fullserviceradio. Full Service Radio features over 30 weekly shows and over 50 local hosts covering every topic imaginable. If you want to be a guest or get involved, email us at info at fullserviceradio.org. Follow us on Twitter at FullServiceRDO, on Instagram and Facebook at Full Service Radio. Thanks for listening.